welcome to the Saturated Stories podcast, everyone. My name's Liz Murphy, and I'm here with pillows around my head looking at Dr. Mim Fox. Hi, Liz. I love the pillows today. We're, we're being guided by our wonderful producer, and we've been told we have to make a pillow... Uh, a pillow podcast fort. Pillow podcast fort, correct. That's right. I think we've gotten pretty good at that over COVID, actually, getting the pillow podcast fort down pat I've, I've never done a pillow podcast fort I've been in the cupboard but now I've got <laughs> two pillows in either hand around my head so again let it be said how much we love you listeners that's right now the other exciting thing about this episode is it's it, we're going back to our roots this is one of our traditional stories where we have a beautifully, beautifully, did I say beautifully, told story by a social worker. It's a practice piece. Yeah, I, I really like this story, Liz. It grows as you listen to it, as it goes along. And um, I was taken by surprise, actually, at the depth to which this social worker goes to. I love it because... And in fact, Mim, I'll just, I'll, well, I'll start by saying it's a beautiful practice piece where the social worker talks about her work with two men, a father and son, and the involvement that she has at the end of this father's life. I'm not going to go into too much detail because she does that, but what she also does is she weaves in what's informing her work and also how it felt for her working with these two men. So this is one of these classic pieces that we'd say, if, if this came to supervision, gosh, I'd be happy. Yeah, it's a powerful piece actually, isn't it, Liz? Do you know what? It's a hammock piece because you and I can really kick back with this one because this beautiful social worker does all the work. So listeners, take a listen to this beautiful story we will come back and we're going with the less is more this episode because this social worker has done our job for us. Yeah, we'll raise a few couple of things that we really liked in this story, but we're going to let you really enjoy the sound of this social worker going deep in her reflections and in her work. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy everyone. To give you a bit of a background of the case example I'd like to discuss today, I'm talking about a man that I met through um, the course of my work. He, his name for this podcast will be Tony. He was a man in his 60s who had a new diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. I was referred to meet with Tony pretty much at the time of diagnosis uh, in the outpatient clinic setting. This was as he was in the workup process uh, for looking at, I guess, what the diagnosis means for him and what the treatment options would be. Uh, and it was also contextualised by the fact that he was the primary carer for his son, Chris, who was in his 40s, who had an intellectual disability because of a genetic condition uh, and um, was largely completely dependent upon Tony. So my referral was uh, 
to meet with Tony to get a sense of where he was sitting amidst his new diagnosis and uh, to look at what supports we could put in place for his son, Chris. Uh, so I met him there in clinic, uh, started with a psychosocial assessment where I'd learnt that really it was just uh, Chris and Tony, that it had been them for a long time. Uh, Chris's mum had died early in his life. Uh, there was another child, but Tony was estranged from that child, so uh, they weren't in their lives at all anymore. Uh, and Tony had one sister um, and his father, who was alive but had dementia, and his mum had also already died. There was a very small package of care through the NDIS, or National Disability Insurance Scheme, uh, which for anyone unfamiliar with the NDIS um, is a national scheme in Australia which basically allocates a, pack, a budget um, for people with disabilities under the age of 65 uh, and they have a lot of agency over how they use this budget, um, what kind of core supports that they need through it um, and it had really been Tony who was directing how they used this budget. Because they were largely self-sufficient, there wasn't a huge budget in place. Um, there was only a few short blocks of time each week uh, where Chris was taken out for social outings with a carer. Uh, there was no budget for accommodation, for example, which is something that would need to be funded through the NDIS um, for somebody with a disability to access, say, uh, live-in respite or um, a placement in a, in a group home or something, any kind of residential facility. Uh, they did have a few close friends um, and had, you know, led a very interesting life together. They'd uh, travelled to Vietnam uh, and the kind of vague future plan that was in place was uh, one day for Chris and Tony to move to Vietnam when Tony was older uh, and for carers to be paid there where the cost would be dramatically lower than in Australia. Uh, there was no... Uh, power of attorney or will in place. Um, and in that first, like a social assessment with Tony, he was quite honest about the fact that this was something he'd put off because it was quite hard to make those choices about what would happen for Chris in the future. Um, and I guess one thing I'm very mindful of when I meet with people as they've been diagnosed with cancer is, you know, there's so much information that they're given in terms of the cancer, the treatment options, what this is going to mean for them, that it's often best to focus on building rapport, maybe touch on some of the interventions that we might like to consider together, um, but not necessarily to, you know, go gung-ho from that very first meeting, but just to sit with, I guess, whatever their focus or priorities are. Um, to offer, you know, to ask the question, what would you like to discuss? How much detail do you want to go in today? Um, and what would you like to work on together? And at that point, Tony was um, quite clear that, you know, he was just trying to get his head around all of this and what it would mean for it, him and, and for Chris. The diagnosis was a big surprise to them. Uh, and, you know, he was happy for us to um, work on that in coming meetings. Uh, so the plan, you know, where we left it was to figure out exactly what was going to happen with the cancer treatment and to pick back up. Um, and we kind of went over, you know, the importance of getting some of that advanced care planning or uh, 
legal arrangements in place. Unfortunately, within a week, uh, Tony had uh, a lot of abdominal symptoms um, and was admitted to hospital. This was a, a sudden admission. Um, and just because of the sheer lack of other supports in their lives, uh, Chris was also admitted alongside him as a social admission. Uh, for anybody who's not familiar with what a social admission means, it's really, you know, as it sounds, when there's no medical reason for them to be in an acute care hospital, but because of caring responsibilities or a lack of safety in the community, um, they're offered a hospital bed. It's usually something that's done for, you know, 24 to 48 hours while we make another plan. Um, but unfortunately, in this case, there really was no other options immediately available for this family. Also, unfortunately, within those first few days, scans were completed um, and there was a dramatic spread to the disease uh, and the plan and treatment kind of rapidly shifted from what chemo was available to palliative care. The window for treatment had been missed. So this um, kind of rapidly intensified in terms of um, social work intervention because it had gone from something where we had a bit of time and space to plan for the future to a prognosis of short weeks of life left for, for Tony. Uh, so understandably, you know, his biggest concern was, well, what's going to happen with Chris? Uh, there was a small amount of apprehension that maybe the estranged sibling might come back into the picture, and that was something that Tony felt very strongly shouldn't happen. Uh, so really there was a focus on, okay, well, we need to get your wishes known and documented uh, just so that they're there, you know, that you've been the one and only primary carer for Chris for his entire life. You know, they knew each other so intimately. Um, Tony really, you know, communicated beautifully with Chris, who was nonverbal, um, and understood what he wanted and needed at all times, um, where nobody else really had that knowledge. Uh, he did have, you know, a couple of close carers, Chris did, who saw him and kept visiting him at their usual schedule during hospital. But obviously, you know, Tony was going through lots of different, you know, scans and um, kind of immediate treatments where he was maybe unavailable for a couple of hours and we needed some backup support for Chris in those hours. You know, the nurses couldn't provide him that one-to-one -one support all day. Uh, so it kind of quickly became um, very focused on, well, what's the current package of care from the NDIS? Is there more respite care support funding available so that we could get carers in every day to be with Chris during the day while Tony was occupied with a view to, well, what's going to happen as Tony's condition worsens and um, he ultimately dies. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of calls to be made, uh, you know, contacting the existing agency involved to find out if they had any scope for more carers to, to be put in place. Um, they bent over backwards to find available carers to try to have a seven-day coverage with a very meagre budget. The other focus was obviously on um, organising a review of the NDIS plan urgently and escalating that through all of the available channels to try to get a new a new package of care for Chris that would include accommodation because he would need residential um, placement as soon as possible, really. 
Uh, it was then also, you know, Tony's been playing the role of support coordinator of allocating the budget through uh, Chris's life. We're going to need somebody to step into that role because he's not able to do it. So there was lots of calling around um, as part of the review process. As anyone who's done it before would know, there's a lot of gathering history, gathering information. Uh, and Chris, to his, um, I guess, credit, was very healthy. He'd had almost no contact with doctors. He didn't have a strong relationship with any GP. They'd only kind of newly-ish moved home from Vietnam. So there was no, um, you know, they didn't have the support network around them to gather that information easily. I was calling um, carers from, you know, 10, 15 years ago trying to gather a bit of history for Chris to put together for the plan review. Um, unfortunately, there had also um, been incidents in the past where Chris had become quite aggressive or when he was agitated, understandably, um, and they were always um, caused by a separation from Tony. So any time that they were apart for more than a few hours, uh, Chris didn't tolerate that change to his daily routine and, and could become um, a bit aggressive, uh, which was definitely something to worry about as well within a hospital planning sense because we need to make sure that Chris is safe but also that all the workers are safe in the hospital, um, that we had a good risk management plan in place. Uh, he was a big man in his 40s, you know, um, very tall and physically imposing, uh, so we wanted to make sure that it didn't escalate to the point where um, there was any physical threats to anybody. Uh, and I guess, I, you know, this time period, I think I could say, um, was an incredibly busy time period, lots of calling around, but that everybody who heard this story essentially, you know, jumped over backwards to try to find a solution to make things happen far quicker than they normally would to support um, both Chris and Tony. The NDIS was obviously kind of the big, the big cog that needed to turn to get things happening. Um, ideally, we were looking towards, I guess, um, expanding the carers who Chris knew and trusted and then also building towards um, Tony being able to have a say in which facility he was most comfortable with, finding the right home environment um, for Chris and Chris hopefully building up from, you know, perhaps spending a couple of hours to maybe even sleepovers and slowly building that comfort with the separation from Tony. Um, obviously, there was also the emotional aspect of, well, how are we going to support Chris in his grief? What's that going to look like? Um, you know, I have a small background in disability, but not, um, you know, not enough that I felt comfortable with knowing what's the best thing to do in this situation. So it was really turning to the experts like um, the intellectual disability clinical nurse consultant that the hospital employed, as well as the um, NDIS contacts. Um, and I guess because of the emotional nature of the case, you know, explaining to everybody involved that unfortunately this is a new diagnosis, but the, the prognosis is measured in weeks. People were really willing to say, well, this is a contact of a support coordinator who I know is fantastic and skilled in this area. And this is a, a, a psychologist who's skilled with people 
um, from neurodiverse backgrounds and grief, uh, and we were able to really harness all of the networks that we had to find the right supports for this family. Outside of the NDIS, there were also just the practicalities of, you know, contacting the real estate, for example, to let them know why rent hadn't been paid and that the tenancy would need to end. Uh, again, organising um, a solicitor to finalise the paperwork. Uh, we were able to utilise the pro bono service through Council Council New South Wales um, to prioritise that and make sure that Tony was able to get his wishes down legally. And, you know, amongst all of this frantic problem solving, there was also then, you know, myself having to take a deep breath before I went into the room each time to make sure that I was still presenting as calm and centred and offering that steadiness that I think social workers often bring in times of crisis to move in slowly and sit with Tony and talk about what this means for him, giving him the opportunity to reflect on his life and the meanings that he'd um, attributed to his life events, the love that he had for Chris and how important that had been, that it had really directed his entire life. He, you know, having spent that time in Vietnam, had some Buddhist leanings. So philosophically, there was a lot he wanted to reflect on, you know, what he believed is purpose in life through, you know, serving others and having deep abiding connections with other humans. And I think something that he was really proud of, that he had been able to support his son as beautifully as he had throughout his life. There were also, I think, quite difficult conversations that required, I think, a lot of bravery on both of our behalves, stepping into that space of, well, what do you want for Chris after you're gone? Both in the, the general lifelong sense, but also in that really immediate sense of once you've died, would you like him to have the opportunity to see your body how could we support him best in that moment, recognising, you know, he's the expert on, on Chris. How would he see that happening? Uh, and I think I was very moved by Tony's capacity to imagine that and to direct that. He felt it was important that Chris be given the opportunity to see his body, to maybe hold his hand, he said that, um, you know, Chris often woke him up in the morning by touching him so that that, you know, he would imagine that would be a moment where Chris would come to touch him and nothing would happen and that might be when the reality set in for him, but that we should give him the opportunity. He was also a little concerned that maybe this would lead to, you know, a lot of agitation for Chris and how we could manage that. But we also then looked at, well, what does Chris enjoy? What soothes him? He loved colouring in, so can we make sure that that's available so that he can dip in and out of that intensity of seeing his father's body as he needed? He also loved snacks. So could we have some snacks ready, some chocolates? 
any of that really soothing, grounding stuff that any of us turn to in moments of stress and just make sure that that was well documented. So whether it happened at 2 a.m. or on a weekend, that everybody there knew what was available, what the plan was, what their role could be. I think through these conversations I was really guided by um, the companionship model of grief, uh, which was set out by Dr Alan Wolfelt, who's, I think, a grief educator and counsellor. And he really talks about that importance uh, in grief, but I really use it for all of my practice about focusing on curiosity over expertise that companioning is about being present, but um, being present and bearing witness to struggles without directing or trying to take those struggles away, that that's not within our capacity. We're not there to be experts, but it's about bearing witness um, and going into the wilderness of the soul with with another human being. It's not about thinking you're responsible for finding the way out and about listening with the heart, not just analysing with the head. And I think that that's something that I, um, you know, I I think all of us feel that drive. Part of why we get into this work is to fix and to help and to feel like we've contributed. But it's also giving ourselves the freedom to not feel like that's you know, something that we can do. We can't take this pain away. I couldn't cure his cancer, but I could be there with him. I could walk alongside and learn from him about what he felt was best, uh, which is definitely something I've taken away from the experience. So one afternoon, it was a Friday afternoon, it was, um, you know, becoming obvious that time was limited, that, you know, any time I left for the day could be the last time that I saw him. So I went back in um, really just to have that conversation that we had done everything that we needed to do, that all of the plans were in place. Uh, There's a, a bit of a belief, I suppose, in palliative care that people really need that permission to die And it's not a role that I would ever see as being part of my role. That's the family. That's the gift that they give their loved ones. Um, But in this instance, I knew that it was unlikely that anyone in his life was having that conversation with him. I still didn't want to have, you know, as intimate a relationship as I'm sure many of those are, but I wanted to let him know that all of the practical things, all of the things that he thought were important for Chris's future were done. So we had that conversation Everything was in place that he now could just be at peace and focus on what was most important to him. And I said goodbye, leaving him with the idea that he should be so proud of himself for what he'd achieved. And I went back to my office and probably 15 minutes later as I was packing up, I think I was writing my notes for the day, got the page that he had died. Uh, so I, I went back around Um, And unfortunately, in the the nature of the way that he died, there was some blood involved uh, and Chris had witnessed it all. Uh, But, you know, we had so much thought and planning into how we would manage it uh, that everybody went right into the roles that they had prepared. Um, The nurses, the doctors, they were all supporting Tony. 
um, I went and, and was relieved by several different nursing staff in sitting with Chris in offering him that calm presence and engaging him with the things he enjoyed in colouring and with chocolates. And when it was time, we offered him, um, we decided it would be less confronting for him if I was alone in the room with him, um, with him and Tony, but two nursing staff did wait outside listening in in case he did get agitated. Uh, and we offered him that time to say goodbye to his dad. So as we discussed earlier, I, you know, explained to him that unfortunately his dad had died and now was the time to say goodbye. And would it be okay if I pulled the curtain open? And she said it was. And he actually was fairly reluctant to get up to see his dad, um, which I really took to be a sign that he knew exactly what had happened. Uh, he very tentatively uh, did come over eventually, slowly at his own pace, and did touch his dad once and then kind of quickly retreated back to his spot on the chair and picked up the colouring again. Uh, and to me it was very clear that, you know, it was important that he'd had this time to have the opportunity, but also that he'd, you know, he'd done as much as he could tolerate and that would say goodbye. Um, shortly after that, everything that we'd put in place was kind of enacted. Um, the next morning, he, uh, we organised for Chris to be transferred to the residential facility that he'd been spending a bit of time at with the carer that he was most comfortable with. Um, the psychologist was um, planned to meet with him in the coming days um, and, you know, really support him through that grief. Yeah, and I heard several weeks later that it had really gone pretty smoothly, that he'd settled in well to his new facility. He was enjoying his time outside. But there were still many moments where it was obvious he was missing his dad, that he was grieving in his way. Um, but, you know, the worst of what we'd expected could happen, the agitation, the aggression, the, you know, pure distress hadn't happened and I really believe that's because, you know, in this case, it was the multidisciplinary team, both in hospital and in the community, that it was the sum of all parts working together for the best possible outcome in a really tragic situation. I heard uh, several weeks later um, from the facility that he was at that it uh, that he'd settled in really well. Uh, that he was engaging with the psychologist. He was still seeing those same carers who he'd met um, both before and during hospital. Um, you know, that there were times where it was, you know, pretty obvious he was missing Tony, uh, but that he was, you know, enjoying settling into his new home, which was really nice to hear. I guess for us, um, somebody described the process the next day as transformative of kind of witnessing the pain that we all felt in that moment, but that we just all stayed calm and focused on the work ahead of us. And I think that's something that I've really taken away. I guess there's this emerging concept of professional grief, which is something I've only come across um, in literature probably the last year or year and a half. Um, but it was kind of, I think this really shows it that we work with such suffering there's so much intensity and intimacy to the work that we do everywhere in social work I mean this is an example about end of life but everywhere has that same shared personal nature to it 
And that um, there's a quote from Dr. Rachel Remen, and I guess the crux of it is dealing with suffering every day and not expecting to be touched by it is as realistic as walking through water and expecting not to get wet. Uh, and I think that's something that's come out for me is that no amount of self-care or good supervision, um, none of that will protect us from the feeling of professional grief ourselves, grief for the people that we've known, for the lot losses that we've witnessed, witnessed and that it's more about then creating those little rituals ourselves to say goodbye to the people that we've known in the course of our work, to grieve the losses that we ourselves feel. And that's not a sign of poor boundaries or transference. It's just a sign of being humans, doing human work, uh, a sign of our compassion that should be honoured, not protected against. Uh, and I think that's, you know, probably the message that I most want to share is that that's a normal, healthy part of social work, is feeling those different griefs and finding a way to work through them ourselves. Liz, I really love this story. Uh, it swept me away and um, mainly it's because when I started listening to it I thought we were listening to a story about disability support and case coordination. Did actually. you? I thought it was an end of life piece. I, I kept getting a bit confused and I kept and I knew I knew it was an end stage story and it was about grief but because the social worker went into such depth and detail around the disability support and case coordination and the NDIS and the back and forth of all that work I kind of got sidetracked and got stuck into that and then I kept getting pulled back and remembering that actually this is a story about grief and it made me think about the fact that there is no story that's just about grief because grief interweaves into all of our work all of the time. There's never a possible start point and end point for grief work. No, and so when you're thinking about, well, this is a beautiful piece of therapy that yes. she is doing with, with Tony um, and linking it to that beautiful model of companion, companion oh, yeah, Wolfenstadt, yeah. I think she... Yeah, yeah she did speak about the companionship model and described it in a way, actually, Liz, I haven't heard it described like that before. She summarised it and all the stages and elements of it perfectly. But it's a model that suits social work. Yeah, That non-expertise role that she played. Yeah. The pacing herself with Tony yeah. and also with Chris. Yeah. A very, it, it actually sounded like it was a gentle model for a gentle social worker. <laughs> you know what the phrase I loved was? The diving into the wilderness of the soul. Oh, stop. I, I miss that, know. that's beautiful. Oh, oh, I just thought that's exactly what grief is like. That actually you're in the wilderness with someone. And what she said was the social work role isn't about guiding that person out. It's about sitting with them in the wilderness, witnessing the wilderness. And right. so back to your point then. Yeah. Then. So there were those beautiful moments where it was pure grief work. Yeah. But there was lots and lots and lots of task-focused work that she had to get through in order to do that work. So they, they couldn't have been done, the grief work couldn't have been done in isolation from the 
the the work that she had to do with NDIS and oh, absolutely. the support work for Chris. Absolutely, because he actually, as she said, he couldn't really seek permission to die before those elements of the care for his son were resolved, right? No parent could have died no. knowing that or not knowing that their son was going to be cared for. And the honouring that she did of the relationship that he had had with his son, right? The absolute honouring of the beauty of that connection. Astounding. I've got to say. Yeah. Hats off to that oncology ward because it wouldn't be a lot of oncology wards that would have had the son admitted in the same ward yes. as the dad. I mean, such yeah. compassion. And the support that they showed when the man actually died to follow the plan that had been laid out. And when she went to check on the ward and she saw that they were actually being faithful to the plan and that they were all on the same page. I mean, my heart was breaking listening to that, Liz, because actually that's exactly what coordinated care should look like. And Tony's timing was fine. Yeah. You know, Friday afternoon. <laughs> a Friday afternoon death is never, ever one of those ones that you, you particularly want yeah. as a social worker. I noted that she was packing up. Yes. <laughs> but that he, he did it so that she was able to get back, so she was able to be present for that yeah. and be there with Chris. It's a beautiful sense of closure you don't always get, right? No. Yeah. Half an hour later, and she wouldn't have known about this until Monday morning. It might have brought it. They might have brought in an on-call social yes. worker. I don't know. But they wouldn't have had the consistency in relation to the staff, the, 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 the clients. Uh, and, and I would imagine that Chris needed that as much as possible. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Liz... Can we touch on professional grief? I want to touch on that, definitely. <laughs> the notion of professional grief is not one that we talk about much. We've talked in this podcast about compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma, the impact of our work on ourselves. But this notion of professional grief is really an interesting one. And she was talking about the need for us to have a ritual or to... Um, really acknowledge the impact that working with grief and suffering every day has on us and it took me right back Liz to when I used to work in the intensive care unit and um, I used to there were a lot of people who died who didn't have family and friends support around them um, the area I was working in there actually was quite a high number of people who died in that situation and what I found was that for those people particularly but then it became for everybody who died in the unit I needed to acknowledge the end of their life in some way. And so I remember that I used to go and light candles. It was, I didn't have a fire alarm in my office. And so I would actually light a candle for each death as I worked in that unit, just to take a moment and acknowledge the life that was and the life that ended. And it took me right back there, Liz, because I loved that. It was so important to me. And um, what a beautiful way of acknowledging those people's lives and the impact that they had just for those moments that you had with them. But did you share that with anyone? Never. I right. never spoke because I thought it would be weird. And that's what she said, actually, what this social worker said was that often it's not a socially supported thing to think about the impact of grief on ourselves um, because we're supposed to be stoic. Uh, but actually, and that's really interesting, Liz, that I never actually spoke to anyone about it. I felt like it would be seen as me not being strong enough or not coping. Whereas I know for me, it was a really important, and it was an intensive care unit. So it's not like I'd even spoken with these people, right? 
but I had done so much work around them while they were on the ventilators and with their families or not, in the case of people who had no one, that actually it was more an acknowledgement of a life that was lived and a life that ended. What if, what if we as social workers acknowledged our professional grief more? Could there be a link with the vicarious trauma, the compassion fatigue that we're seeing? What if this is part of it? What if social workers are not feeling like they're able to discuss the impact of their work in a way that you've just described or this particular social worker's described? What if that could be one way that social workers could care for themselves in the work that they do? To be able to talk about it with their supervisor, to yeah. be able to reflect on what they're needing to do in order to honour the work that they had done with that particular client. Yeah. To and give themselves permission to actually feel a sense of loss as a result of working with that particular And to person. not see that sense of loss as a deficit, right? Yes. To actually embrace the vulnerability that comes with being a worker and coming close to issues of mortality and um, uh, the very vulnerable and emotional space that we work in all the time to rather than seeing that emotional and vulnerable space as the other, to actually see it as a part of something that we are interwoven with, right? I think you're right. I think that, that feels like a missing piece. Maybe that's what we need to do some reflection and conversations around more. Yeah, I think so too. And I think when we talk about self-care, it often becomes this very um, vague, abstract notion, or it becomes extremely practical. Have you gone to yoga? Have you done meditation? Have you had your lunch break, right? But this is the intangible around self-care, right? that it's actually not about fixing it, it's not about the solution, it's about how you cope with the ongoing process of your work. Yes. The everyday. And about paralleling some of the support or information that we would, we would provide to our clients about grief. Mm. What if some of that is very useful for ourselves in relation to professional grief? So normalising, processing, rituals, yeah. being vulnerable in that space, in a safe space. Yeah. Well, this was not where this conversation was going to go. It never is. is. When we started, this was not the place we were heading. But listeners, welcome to the inside of our brains. Our and, hearts. And our hearts. And, um, and I guess this is a challenge that we put out there to our listeners, right, is do some thinking around where, where does this conversation land for you. But we said from the outset that if this, this social worker brought this to supervision, yeah. what a beautiful, what a beautiful session that would be. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about. This is what supervision can sound like. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, th I, I agree with you. And actually, if you're willing to be vulnerable in supervision, and if you, as a supervisor, are willing to create that safe space and honour the process for your supervisee, then actually this is the dialogue you can be having, right? It, uh -huh. it's, a, it's a really significant shift. And such a rich conversation and 
so useful in our work. Yeah, completely, completely. Liz, I'm thinking we leave it there. And um, I uh, am really looking forward to hearing from the listeners whether this has landed with them and, you know, what's resonated uh, about this conversation. I'm go- I think I'm going to be sitting with it for a little while, actually. My mind is still churning it over. Listeners, please uh, get in touch and let us know your thoughts um, and where you're at at the moment. And at the moment, we're also doing a call out for stories. So if uh, any social workers out there have some interesting stories from their practice at the moment that they'd uh, like to record on a voice memo app and send it in for us, or if there's been a story that has been impacted because of COVID, some of your practice that's been impacted by COVID, we're particularly interested in hearing stories about that and being able to showcase that sort of work. And in order to do that, Liz, uh, people need to contact us through social media, which uh, is fantastic. So it's SOWK Stories Pod. And we are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook now. Amazing. And um, of course, we have our website, www.socialworkstories.com. So our website is going through a bit of a revival. So people may see some changes coming in um, the next few weeks or so. And, um, and uh, we're hoping that we can link some more information to the episodes and transcripts and things like that. Uh, and if you're not sure how to get in contact with us, even after this amazing little spiel that I've just done, um, it's all in your show notes at the bottom on your podcast app. So please reach out and get in touch. Did you like that, Liz? I loved it. Yeah. Which leaves me with goodbye. (laughs) Farewell, everyone. Take care of yourselves. See you soon.